Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and this is episode 21. On today's episode, our guest is Janam Mukherjee. He is the author of the book, Hungry Bengal. Today, we are going to discuss the Bengal famine of 1943. Famine is usually assumed to be caused by natural factors like drought or bad weather. But this famine in 1943 was man-made and it was largely the fault of the British. But you won't see any of that if you're looking through the pages of British history, World War II history, or any books about Winston Churchill. And that's because history is truly written by the victors. The famine killed millions and millions. Just Google Bengal Famine of 1943 and you'll find haunting photos of brown bodies. When you're looking at the photos, you'll notice that people are barely wearing any clothing or if they are, it's just scraps of clothing. And that's because the British bought out or took or stole or captured most of the fabric and textiles from the region to use for the war, to make parachutes, to make pants and boots. So this is a very important episode and an important topic. So let's get started. I often um, pronounce it Janam, but is it, you're correct that it's Janam. Janam, okay, <laughs> makes sense. It's nice to finally meet you. Thank you for doing this. Nice to meet you, Asim. You, you know, I said, my story is, is somewhat similar. I grew up in, in mid-Michigan in a mostly pretty much all-white community. And I also knew nothing about my South Asian roots. And I traveled to Calcutta the first time in 1999 at the age of 32 to kind of trace some of the stories that, you know, I had heard from my father, um, you know, and then this wow. developed and mushroomed into this entire, you know, now 20 year project of understanding the 1940s uh, in Calcutta, where my father grew up during this period of time. That's so I also, you know, started from scratch in, in many ways. So that's interesting. To hear. We, we both have the same hairstyle too. <laughs> your dad was in the was was there during that time during the bengal famine he was you know he was born in 1932 so he was 11 during the famine and then you know my work really started focusing on the hindu muslim violence of 1946 which really began the partition kind of real violence of partition started in calcutta so he was 14 at that time and left India in 1956 um, and really, like so many immigrants of that era, left for good. You know, he didn't really look back much. So and and so I grew up in the States and I had zero. I didn't know any Bengali. I had no concept of, of the history of uh, Bengal or even my family or anything. So I started kind of looking at these and I came on my own also as a independent, you know, my own independent interest and with the idea of writing a family history. Uh, and then through many different transformations ended up in academia, which is the last place I will ever imagine myself being. So, uh, it's, it's a pretty cool journey. It's a pretty cool journey where you ended up. The book was great. The book was really detailed and haunting. And yeah. uh, what was the Bengal region like before colonialism, before the British arrived? You know, before the British arrived, it, it was one of the richest places uh, in Asia. You know, it was one of the kind of most important fine textile manufacturing regions in the world. Uh, so it was connected you know, during the Mughal period through the Silk Road to uh, trade routes leading into North Africa and West Asia and even into Europe. 
you know, some of the uh, kind of finest uh, textile, you know, all kind of local um, hand-produced uh, woven cloths of the kind of finest materials. Uh, a lot of the prints that became very popular in Europe, calico, uh, muslin, uh, these, you know, cloth and, and the kind of way of weaving and, and the print styles and everything originated in India. And Bengal was really the capital of much of the kind of production before the colonial era, which is why when the British came then, they focused their attention on Bengal because they were exporting then uh, these materials uh, for huge profits uh, back in Europe. Uh, so that was really the cornerstone of British colonialism in Asia was out of Bengal. There were, uh, from what I've read or heard, there were a lot of famines that happened in that region before the British came along. Why, why is this famine different than the other famines? It's kind of unclear what the, what the level of famine was before the British uh, arrived. The first acts of the British, though, um, once they defeated the Mughal kind of rule in Bengal uh, and, and gained the rights of taxation, which essentially gave them a kind of economic control of the region, although they left the Mughal rule kind of in nominal power uh, politically. Uh, they gained an economic foothold really in, in 1765. And then by 1770, you have a famine that killed off a fully a third of Bengal. At that time, it was about 30 million. Uh, and the estimates are that about 10 million people died of famine within the first five years, really, that of British rule. And famine on that scale had been unknown. Um, you know, the Mughal Empire, there were famines that were environmentally related. Uh, and the Mughal Empire was rather, you know, and, and kind of the, the pre-modern empires in general in Asia had provisions uh, for famine relief and, and storages of uh, foodstuffs. Uh, and famines were often related, as I said, to environmental uh, issues such as drought or flood. Whereas even that earliest famine in, in the British times was a much more related to the lack of capacity to govern, uh, the lack of interest in the uh, indigenous, the Bengali population, the kind of neglect uh, of their welfare. Uh, the British then very quickly also began dismantling the industrial uh, textile kind of uh, economy of Bengal and reverting then the whole region to the production of raw materials, cotton, uh, opium, which became very important in their control over China, uh, and uh, kind of reversed then the whole system of trade, which began with export, but the British didn't like to export products back because it was very expensive for them. They'd have to take their ships there pretty much empty, spend their... Uh, money buying, purchasing on the ground, and then ship uh, whatever the kind of goods for export were all the way back to Britain. So the perfect colonial system is to have the colonies produce the raw materials, bring those raw materials uh, back to Europe, and then produce their own and and kind of then you know import those back into the colonies. So, and it was really Bengal that they developed that colonial kind of economy uh, to the full. 
earlier. So, and there are recurrent famines, you know, and famines related to the kind of economic dislocations of deindustrialization, repeasantization, cash cropping, those span the whole 18th and 19th century. There are different famines. So the one in 1943, right, before the famine started, what was the the context, the situation that was happening in the Bengal that started to lead into the famine? The most immediate factor is war, is World War II. Uh, you know, with the advent of World War II in 1939, uh, the British declared war for its entire empire on Germany. Uh, so that meant India, it meant Kenya, and it meant the entire colonial world was basically forced into service of the British war effort. Although obviously India was not within German radar of the war, and, and there was you know, very little chance of Germany bombing uh, Calcutta, for instance. The entire idea was to mobilize the population behind the war effort. So you have development of uh, you know, manufacturing of war materials, particularly again, textiles, which by now are being made kind of in mass in a very raw uh, product for things like uniforms, tents, uh, et cetera, and eventually uh, kind of heavy industrial manufacturing at, as well, and not paying India for those services, right? So India was essentially a separate country, although part of the empire, with their own economy and their own budget and their own kind of autonomy as far as the economy went as well. And British started mining India for the human and material resources necessary for war. And that caused even by the early 1940 inflation to start really uh, taking hold. But in fact, the, the countryside of Bengal had been impoverished, at least kind of direly impoverished since at least the depression in the 1930s. So people were indeed already starving in the mm -hmm. 1930s. And then during the war period, particularly with the uh, inflationary crisis, but many other policies leading to famine. Uh, the most famous of which then is the policy of denial, what was called the denial policy, which was once Japan attacked uh, and routed the British in Singapore and in Malaysia and in Burma, India became the kind of last frontier of the British Empire in Asia. The next target. Uh, the next target, or so the British thought. wanted to advertise. Whether they even thought that or not is unclear. Mm -hmm. um, but what they then embarked upon was a scorched earth campaign in Bengal. In, in Malaysia and in Burma, the Japanese had, had done landings and advanced on the capitals uh, overland through the jungles of this entire kind of crescent of uh, uh, Southeast Asia and, 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 and that region and appropriated what they needed along the way, the foodstuffs, the transportation. Resources. Resources. So the British then to supposedly to prevent an attack on Calcutta, uh, mobilized a kind of military apparatus to go into the Bengal countryside and destroy the transportation infrastructure. So because it's the delta of the Ganges region, you have most of the transportation being done by uh, boat. 
So they actually went in and burned and sunk and removed these boats from operation. They also went in and began uh, appropriating the rice in the region, what they called the excess rice, uh, to deny the Japanese the resources that they would need in the event of an attack on India, uh, on Calcutta in particular. And this created huge panic. Not only did it remove these important resources, but you know, people, many people in the in the depths of kind of Bengal had never really seen colonial officers or colonial armies. And suddenly they're going into the kind of rural areas of Bengal and by main force uh, destroying essentially the whole economy of Bengal. And that's 1942 then. And you really then, the crisis of, of people's sustenance begins at least, you know, by 19, mid-1942, although it's often called the 1943 famine. There are many warnings and indications as early as 1941, and certainly throughout 1942, uh, that people were starving. Wow. So how bad, how bad did this famine get? How bad was the situation starting from 1943? And how long did it last the famine? So by 1943, by the first few months of 1943, uh, people were absolutely you know, starving to death in broad daylight and leaving their villages in huge numbers and trying to get to somewhere where they could find resources. Mm -hmm. And really because of the colonial system also, that meant Calcutta, Calcutta, the British had really centralized Calcutta as the only show in town, you know. So, so all these starving people began descending in Calcutta. And, you know, images that emerge both in the archives, but also artistic images, of people in their last stages of, of starvation are really grim. I think there is no more inhuman way to kill a person or to die uh, that is starvation. Starvation involves such a complex breakdown of the human organ. You know, people don't realize uh, people were not only skeletal thin, but mad and, uh, you know, and, and covered with sores and, and dying uh, along the way and even, you know, being eaten by wild dogs and vultures even while they were still alive. So uh, it, it really just an awful spectacle. Didn't uh, okay. So now there's a famine happening, and it's clear that it's happening. What did the Indian government do? What did the British do? What did the what did the the world do? You know, in this situation, did they ignore it or did they take action? Because Calcutta was so important to the war effort. You know, America had all its troops mobilized through Calcutta in, in the effort against Japan, as did Britain. So you had the entire British Empire's army kind of stationing and staging out of Calcutta. So you have this spectacle of thousands and thousands of starving people suddenly emerging from the countryside. The British had censored any mention of the word famine. So the word famine was not allowed to be printed. Uh, they had some recognition. There were reports coming from the countryside that people are starving in numbers. They're trying to hush up the story. They're trying to push it out of the kind of press. 
But once people started starving in Calcutta, there was starving people started dying on the streets of Calcutta. They could no longer suppress the information. And actually an English language newspaper, the Statesman, the editor of the newspaper, because the word famine was banned, was censored, he went out and did a photo essay of people on the streets of Calcutta starving and printed that in August of 1943. Uh, and that newspaper had a worldwide circulation. And that really broke the story then. And then the British began panicking because Germany picked up on that. Japan picked up on that. It became a huge PR fiasco. The American government then is putting huge pressure on the British. What the hell is going on? You know, here you have, it, we're staging this war out of this city and this region. And we have international news reports of people starving in your colony. So it's also a maneuver for the United States to, to gain a kind of moral high ground uh, over the British in the war. Um, the British then are still in denial for the most part well into October. And there was a new viceroy that came in at that time, uh, Archibald Wavell, who was a military man who was, who was in charge of the Southeast uh, Asia Command. Uh, he became the viceroy of uh, India November. And he very quickly, whatever might be said about him, he had some instinct, some humanitarian uh, actual sentiment and began mobilizing. You know, there was so much, so much military in the region. So yeah. famine relief in that first stage was actually could have been done much earlier. And, and Wavell directed his military operations, was able to get food into the countryside. Uh, and able to at least put the worst of the food crisis uh, into a box. So, although people continued to starve well into 1946, um, the relief efforts begin in November, and uh, the British then want to call an end to the famine by the end of 1943. So they are eager to say, okay, the famine's over. So because Japan and both Japan and Germany were making huge propaganda uh, out of the thing, uh, and it was very, uh, you know, the British, most of the British administration was more about their own image as the colonial caretaker uh, that finally got things moving towards recognition of the enormity of the situation rather than a kind of actual recognition of the humanity by the end of 1943, probably about 1.3 million people died of starvation. But as I say, the famine really continued. It was pushed out of Calcutta. Uh, starving people were rounded up on the streets of Calcutta, usually in military vehicles. Sometimes you had people running from the military police uh, and being rounded up by force. They were then loaded into these lorries and they warehouse them in kind of uh, large encampments, which almost amounted to uh, concentration camps. They were fed in these uh, kind of what we call famine relief camps, uh, less calories than Germany at that time was feeding uh, the camp, concentration camp victims at uh, Buchenwald. 
Um, and many people escaped from that. But the main thing was to clean up Calcutta. So Calcutta could be still, you know, shown to the world as the kind of center of the fight for freedom and democracy and fascism, kind of ironically. Mm -hmm. Winston Churchill is is a very respected figure in, in modern day history. There's streets named after him, there's statues of him. How is he connected to this? Is he to be mm -hmm. blamed in any way? Definitely. I mean, I mean, Churchill has has a lot of blood on his hands in the colonial world in general, uh, and certainly in Bengal. Um, Bengal was also the center of resistance against the colonial empire, right? Yeah. So Churchill had a particular kind of, you know, opinion about Bengalis uh, and Bengal as, you know, anti. Uh, imperial and anti-British. Uh, famously, also, he, he had a, a hate, what he said, uh, in his own words, a hatred for uh, Indians in particular. Um, you know, recent days, there's been a lot of discussion about Churchill's role in the famine. His role is really becomes extremely, you know, important in 1943, in late 1943, once famine had been kind of, you know, broadcast to the world that famine was going on uh, and the world recognized that people were starving, there were efforts through the war cabinet that, at that time to send imports into India. The big problem was that so much of the rice had been hoarded by that time. So people were hoarding large quantities of rice. So there wasn't enough rice on the market uh, and the scarcity of rice on the open markets led to a hyperinflation of the price of rice. So in that circumstance, the only way you can really bring down the price of rice or the price of any commodity is to dump a, you know, a, a amounts of that commodity on the market. Yeah. Uh, so that I will know. break that, that price scale. So Churchill repeatedly blocked imports into India during this period of time that could have very much uh, broken that inflationary cycle. Um, but I think sometimes Churchill's role has recently been exaggerated in some ways. I mean, that he kind of masterminded famine uh, or that he's a prime culprit, I think is, is missing the complexity of the situation. Um, the extent to which Indian industrialists too, many of whom who became the backbone of independent India, they were making their money and their fortunes uh, in industrial Calcutta at the time, uh, you know, in the war production. So you had, uh, you know, people in the cotton mills and in the uh, kind of commodity uh, production and, and distribution that were making killings. They also partnered with government and repeatedly went into the countryside and backed by the colonial government, backed by the military, and fleeced the countryside for rice. And they were bringing into Calcutta in great quantities uh, to feed their workers. Because in this crisis of you know, foodstuffs, they wanted to guarantee their workforce uh, access to food. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of culpability that, that goes around, as I say, even Indian industrialists. Uh, but there's also the sheer incompetence of the colonial government. You know, 
So it's not that they were just, they, they certainly didn't have any feeling towards uh, racialized people of India uh, and the death of some millions uh, of brown people while their own country is being bombed and, and they, they're facing this, their own existential threat often meant next to nothing uh, to them. But also the colonial system was completely incompetent. You know, they didn't have the kind of structural resources to deal uh, with what was going on. Colonialism had grown aged and decrepit by 1940s. Uh, many of the colonial officers uh, were bitter about their positions. Uh, they were apathetic to the workings of the colonial state. Uh, Again, they had family back home who were facing the war you know, in Europe. Uh, so there's also the story of the collapse of colonial governance as a whole, which plays a big role. But there's also the question of society at large and why even to wealthier populations in India, famine was not recognized. So social partitioning, concern for the poor, which I think you still see in South. Yeah. There are many factors out there. Yeah. But Churchill certainly was, he, he was unforgivingly hostile towards colonies. Uh, right after, shortly after the famine, or maybe during the end of the famine, there was the Quit India Movement that was happening. Is there a connection between the two? So before, really, before 1943, Quit India Movement uh, is erupted in August of 19. And, and it, in fact, is very connected. Gandhi was the first to kind of advance the idea of a mass protest in 1942. And specifically, it began with a protest against the denial scheme that I, that I talked about earlier. So Gandhi said, you know, if you take away the boats in Bengal, it's like cutting off someone's arm. Yeah. You know? And uh, they can't feed themselves. They can't function. So he called for a mass movement against the British and called for those people in Bengal, who the government and the military were coming to appropriate their boats and their rice to resist them. Uh, the British then planned to arrest Gandhi and the rest of the national leadership specifically based on that objection to the denial scheme. The... Announcement of the movement when it came out was, was slightly different than that. The British then arrested Gandhi, uh, Nehru, and the rest of the entire uh, leadership of the Indian National Congress. Um, and then without that leadership, the uprising became very anarchic in a lot of places in India. And it was the most greatest challenge to the colonial system since the rebellion of 1857. And uh, the Viceroy of India at that time authorized machine gunning people from the air and kind of any means necessary to uh, put there on that uprise. So it's, it's very connected. There were riots too, I think in 1946, that were communal riots that were connected to this too. Right. So that, as I, as I mentioned when we spoke at the beginning, that was kind of my starting point uh, of my own research was the Calcutta riots of 1946, which really triggered, it's the first 
eruption of kind of cataclysmic Hindu Muslim violence in India. Why, in is it, why is it a religious thing when the famine happened to everybody? I think that's, I mean, my argument is that you have to look at what happened in Calcutta in the lead up to the, the riots, right? Yeah. And the main important thing was, you know, the, the most overriding factor was hunger and starvation. And the only way you could survive in Bengal, 1943, really through 1946, was to claim some square footage of a place in Calcutta. If you could claim to have some residency, you could then get a ration card. You could then gain employment through which you could gain access to food supplies. So why all the starving people you know, converged on Calcutta and then were driven or rounded up on the streets of Calcutta. The pressure to, to claim space in Calcutta was intense. Uh, the British are, all the troops are being mobilized. There was requis requisitioning of homes. But I think that the flashpoint of violence in 1946, uh, it's often been seen as politically kind of motivated. Which certainly the, the call for Pakistan is an important factor. And the Muslim League then calls for a day of mass demonstration for the inception of Pakistan on August 16th of 1946. But that was an India-wide uh, call. Yeah. And only in Calcutta did you have this you know, violence, catastrophic violence. And I think the scarcity of resources the scarcity of space, the kind of over, you know, the importance of claiming space and, and right to remain in Calcutta uh, has to be understood as part of hostilities and the tension and the kind of pressure that had been built up in that particular city. So I do trace that back to the context of famine. You also see famine becoming like, like we see in the present day with the economy more broadly. After 1943, the standoff between the Muslim League and Hindu elements in Bengal, as well as the Indian National Congress, began you know, to really congeal around questions of whose fault the famine was. The Muslim League was in power in 1943 in Bengal. Uh, so you have the Hindu Mahasabha, led by Shama Prasad Mukherjee, who is really the founder of the BJP. Uh, wow. And the Hindu rights, really? such as that it is, and the RSS uh, in Bengal, resisting and, and trying to scuttle the, the efforts at famine relief that the Muslim League in Bengal is operating. You have accusations and cross-accusations about uh, bias in relief programs. So the government relief is being run by a Muslim League uh, uh, government. The Hindu Mahasabha is claiming that the Muslim League is giving deferential uh, kind of access to relief to Muslims. The uh, many Muslims are also claiming and, and uh, that the relief operations led by Shama Prasad and the Hindu Mahasabha are very much catering to Hindu populations. You have in the legislative assembly uh, heated debates that are breaking increasingly along communal lines related to famine. So famine, and you can imagine when people starved to death or, or when 
when the economy tanks now in Canada or in the United States or in anywhere on earth, uh, that becomes the main political issue. Yeah. Playing game and, and kind of uh, politicking around that. So when you actually have millions of deaths on, on that scale, that political debate becomes even that much more weighted down and, and even that much more polarized. Right. No, you know, I, I've advanced this argument, right? And uh, there's resistance to that argument, which I find is based on a very racist understanding. What is that? When brown people fight each other, it's always about culture. You know, if you read about Nazi Germany, I've never read a book, and I've studied Nazi Germany at some some great depth because it was important. It's been important, kind of theoretically, in the history of these kind of catastrophic events. No one fails to mention hyperinflation in Germany in the lead up to uh, Nazi, the rise of Nazism. Uh, when we look at uh, you know, politics in North America also, that economic factor is always seen as the context of conflict. But when brown people or black people kill each other, they hate each other, they have ancient animosities, they can't, you know, it's their culture that makes them hate each other. And when you try to say, look, there's a economic context to this, there's a context of resource, you know, availability and everything. People say, oh, well, that's economic determinism. For some reason in Europe, that's not economic determinism. But in Kenya or in Africa or in Asia, or in any of the colonial or post-colonial world, we're supposed to only understand violence as these kind of irrational cultural hatreds, uh, instead of looking at economic determinants and uh, political determinants. Wow, you're right. Yeah, 1947 happens. You know, uh, the British are gone, and there's partition and there's violence. What happens to the Bengal region after that? Or like during during partition? You know, Bengal itself was partitioned. So the yeah. east wing of Bengal becomes part of Pakistan, a removed part of Pakistan, the Indian subcontinent in between the west and the east. Uh, Bengal struggled. You know, I, I often ask the question, did famine in Bengal ever really end? Um, yeah. Still hunger in Bengal until this day dire hunger at the moment. We're living in a moment that mirrors 1943 in truly terrifying ways right now with the lockdown and COVID and everything. Um, so Bengal is partitioned um, and there's an independent government. Um, but many of the structural problems related to poverty and inequality uh, certainly have remained. Bengal has not seen catastrophic famine or, or large-scale starvation. There's been a low-grade starvation uh, and disenfranchisement uh, amongst the poor in Bengal um, throughout the 50s and 60s. You then have the rise of the communist government, very much attached, uh, I think, to the period of famine. It's, it's during famine that the Communist Party really gains a foothold. They begin going into the countryside, mobilizing relief, uh, also a cultural kind of program of arts uh, and theater uh, around famine. 
But famine also remains very much, at least until I came. It seems to be changing, but at least until the 90s, you know, no one, famine was part and parcel of the identity of Bengalis. So memories of the, the famine, 1943 famine, are passed down through generation uh, from grandparents to grandchildren for many generations. I'm curious to know, you, you studied Nazism and Nazi Holocaust. Did you find any connections or any similarities between, or did anything from that knowledge help you understand the Bengal famine? I took a lot from my training, you know, because I was, I was at the University of Michigan and there weren't a lot of people working on famine or this period in India at that time. So the scholars of the Holocaust were, some of my main mentors, you know. I think one of the most important things to take away from Holocaust studies is Holocaust studies has always focused on the victims mm-hmm. and on the dignity, humanity of the victims. I think that's very important in colonial historiography also, to always keep in mind the humanity and dignity of the victims of these colonial Holocausts. I think sometimes, again, when we look at colonialism, uh, we deal in these gigantic numbers of death and, and political oppression, uh, but we sometimes lose track of the humanity of victims of, uh, of colonial Holocaust. Also, scholars of Holocaust, very, you know, in, in recent years, have moved beyond blaming Hitler. Yeah. or even blaming the Nazis. Rather, they look at everyday life of Germany. And that, was, that has been one of the big innovations in Holocaust studies, not to finger the big man, the great man of history. Of course, Hitler bears huge responsibility. Of course, Winston Churchill uh, bears huge responsibility uh, for what happened in India. You have to look at the lower level functionaries. You have to look at society at large. You have to look at the daily you know, willful ignorance of the population uh, also to the atrocities going on. Uh, And it's very important to look in a much kind of more holistic sense at how people are marginalized to the point of extermination uh, and how it's permitted by global society, by local society, by colonial society, you know, why are certain people rendered invisible? Um, what are the mechanisms by which they are rendered disposable? Um, so although it's a very unpopular thing to say, I think that that has to be looked at in a much broader sense. And I think it's important today because again, the, the, often the poor in South Asia are invisible, not only on a global scale, but even on a national scale, there's a unwillingness to kind of really understand the suffering of people at the bottom of the economic structure. And that's true everywhere. What are you researching these days now? What's your next project? Oh, I am writing a very complicated narrative that deals with 
the personal experience of this period of time that I've written this historical book about. It deals with my family history, so the actual experiences of, I, you know, and during my research, I, I interviewed dozens of people who had survived from the 1940s. So this is a much more kind of, I want to write the experiential history of this period of time from, from much more kind of subjective perspectives. Uh, and, and it's kind of intertwined with a family history. And then my own history uh, in my own journey of kind of researching this period of time and coming to uh, Calcutta and learning the language and uh, kind of delving into this history. So it's a kind of uh, multifaceted, uh, what's a creative nonfiction? Creative nonfiction. Is there, can you give us a preview of what your family's history dealt with during the Bengal famine? Yeah, so during the famine, um, my you know my family was a middle class family. They, like many middle class families in Calcutta, they were fine as far as foodstuffs go. You know, they didn't uh, go hungry, mm -hmm. um, and that's true of, of most people from from the kind of white collar class who had established residency. In uh, but it was during the riots that my family really, uh, the house was, our family's house, so my grandfather's house was uh, attacked during the riots uh, and burned, and many members of the family uh, killed during the 1946 riots. Uh, my father witnessed uh, the people getting beheaded, uh, for instance, and the kind of terror, existential terror of they survived. They went up to the rooftop, and my uncle, my father's older brother, had an old gun in the house, which he began firing uh, when the house was attacked. And the uh, attacking mom then dispersed, um, and they were rescued from that rooftop, but spent the next many years uh, essentially homeless, moving from one provisional place of refuge to another. Um, and our village home, you know, where my grandfather had originally come from, was lost during partitions. So in a normal period of time, they would have probably fled back to the village once they mm -hmm. were rendered, you know, homeless in Calcutta. But then came partitions. So the village house it was cut off from access. So many years of extraordinary hardship for my family yeah. and for many years after really decades and that's one of the main reasons my father left India uh, I think it was too much for him what he had witnessed by the time he was 18 is it's almost unimaginable and I think he carried that trauma all his life you know now there's a lot of work done on intergenerational trauma and the trauma that people suffer in the colonial world suffer and continue to suffer but at that time you just moved forward and you moved outside of that i think my father lived with deep trauma his whole life and probably a lot of ptsd his whole life and in many ways i inherited that i mean something inside of me compelled me as an adult to travel to india and begin researching what he had experienced as a child and I think it is that 
you know, how these things get transmitted from father to son or to daughter or to from mother to son or daughter, etc., are very mysterious, you know. Yes. We pick up on them somehow, you know. There's subtle gestures, there's subtle sorrows or subtle ways of being uh, that people have who've lived through extreme trauma. Uh, and I think us children of those generations who lived through that, we live with a kind of mystery. You know? We pick up on those things, but we don't even know why, because we're often not told the full stories because of the trauma behind them. Because our, you know, my father, at least, the stories he told me were very skeletal, very little. But somehow I understood that they were so deep, these stories. And that compelled me to investigate them further. And I've learned a tremendous amount about myself, my own darkness, my own, what haunts me, you know, which it never occurred to me was, you know, part of that at least was transmitted in some ways through my father's experience as a child and lived through bombardment. You know, Calcutta was bombed also. And of the events that my father witnessed, I think that was one of the most traumatic. Uh, his house was, our house was very close to the Calcutta docks, the main target of Japanese bombing. And he was 10 years old, 11 years old, you know, and he would, he had nightmares of that his entire life. The bombs going off in the house, you know, the house, the foundation of the house cracked, the windows were blown out. Uh, and that kind of feeling of, of apocalypse, that aerial bombardment, one of the reasons why I'm, my relationship to my own country is so contentious. One of the reasons why I teach in Canada, uh, having witnessed the United States wars of the last 20 years, you know, and thinking about the children in Baghdad and in uh, Kabul and in Yemen and knowing what that does to us and to a child. I think it's, it's well worth understanding the trauma that children suffer, also their own politics and really relate to modern empires. Is there something you want to talk about or you want to plug in? Because I've asked all my questions. That's fine. Awesome. You know, I would say, you know, I, I would like to say that uh, I'm in Calcutta now. I, I had to leave a year and a half ago. I was on sabbatical and I left just two days before the lockdown. And uh, I never imagined that my work would be as important to the present as it is right now. Um, I think the economic situation, the material situation here right now is worse than it's been in modern history since 1943. And I think there's a real risk of hunger overcoming large portions of the population here right now. I do think that the world needs to understand um, what's happening in Bengal, in India, in various places around the world with this emergency, with this health emergency. You know, so much of what I wrote about was about the emergency of war and the idea that the authority can then take any extraordinary measures, can sacrifice 
large portions of a population to the cause of defeating this enemy. I think we're perilously close to that kind of ideological structure uh, with the COVID pandemic right now, where there is concern about health uh, and the emergency of this pandemic is creating the conditions for a ignorance and a kind of blindness to the economic suffering of giant masses of people, not only in India, but around the world, in mm-hmm. North America as well. In North America, people have certain provisions on employment here, you know, et cetera. Here, people don't have that. Yeah. Uh, so you have the people living already on the barest margins for the last decade or however long, generations many, who are now completely being rendered destitute by lockdowns and the ongoing concern about the pandemic, I think we have to also take on board the concern about human survival materially and economically. And that has to be part and parcel of how this current emergency is dealt with. Otherwise, we run a serious risk of far larger catastrophe, in my opinion. And I would Definitely. Wow. Uh, wow. This is awesome. Honestly. Um, thank you so much for doing this. All right, man. Well, thanks for doing this and good luck on it. I'm glad you're doing it. It's an interesting project. Thank you. Take care. See you soon. Hopefully. Yeah. Bye-bye.